The artificial sweetener aspartame has been on the market for decades. You can find it in everything from diet soda to cereal. It's on the store shelves as NutraSweet and Equal, but coming up questions about the health risks of consuming too much. Today is Thursday, the 13th of July. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the state of Iowa plans to implement a restrictive ban on abortion. Some evangelical leaders are wary. It's as if the legislators are taking their own personal religious views and trying to transfer it onto the general public. Also, the painting known as Whistler's Mother is on display in Philadelphia for the first time in nearly 150 years. It's one of the best-known paintings in the world and it has a great backstory. You'll hear about it coming up on WBUR. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Now the actors are going on strike. The National Board of SAG-AFTRA, the union representing 160,000 film and television performers, has unanimously voted for a work stoppage hours after their contract with studios expired. That means as of 12.01 a.m. Pacific time, Hollywood actors will join their colleagues in the Writers Guild who've been on strike the last two months to demand better pay, streaming residuals, and more job protections against the growing presence of AI in the entertainment industry. SAG-AFTRA President Fran Drescher of the nanny sitcom fan told reporters a short time ago the studios failed to treat employees with the respect they deserve. We're not going to keep doing incremental changes on a contract that no longer honors what is happening right now with this business model that was foisted upon us. What are we doing? Moving around furniture on the Titanic? NPR newsroom staff are members of SAG-AFTRA but are not subject to the contract in dispute. Much of the western U.S. is facing a prolonged heat wave. Tens of millions of people affected. It's a similar situation around the globe. This June was the hottest June ever recorded on the planet, federal scientists say. When NPR's Rebecca Hirsch reports records go back to 1850. The average global temperature in June 2023 was slightly hotter than the previous record hottest June in 2020, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The oceans were particularly hot. June was the third month in a row that the average ocean temperature worldwide was record-breakingly high. El Nino is one reason. The cyclic climate pattern causes hotter-than-normal water in the Pacific and drives up global temperatures more broadly. But human-caused climate change is the broader cause. The last eight years were the hottest ever recorded, and forecasters say the next five years will be the hottest ever recorded. Global temperatures will continue to rise if human greenhouse gas emissions do not fall. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is leaving the NATO summit now with no clear timeline for when his country might join the military alliance. He recently had a one-on-one with President Biden. We have more from NPR's Asma Khalid. Zelensky was asked by a reporter if he was satisfied with what he got from NATO, and he suggested he was, specifically mentioning the pledge for long-term security assistance from the United States as well as other countries in the G7. Biden had a similar message for reporters traveling with him on Air Force One. The one thing Zelensky understands now is that whether or not he's in NATO now is not relevant as long as he has the commitments. Some NATO members, including the U.S., are insisting that in order for Ukraine to join NATO, the war with Russia needs to end first. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. 45 members of a federal emergency rescue group based in Beverly are deployed in Vermont as it recovers from massive flooding and braces for more rain. Search and Rescue Team Task Force One spokesman Tom Katsuna says the team includes water rescue specialists and medical personnel. They did a rescue of 23 individuals, 18 adults, five children and two dogs. They were in a multifamily structure that was had eight feet of water on one side and four feet on the other. Gatsuna says the team is scheduled to stay in Vermont for two weeks. Other crew members will follow if needed. For the first time in three months, no areas of Massachusetts are under any kind of drought condition. The U.S. Drought Monitor reports parts of the Cape and Islands that were labeled abnormally dry last week have recovered thanks to all the rain we've picked up in the past few days. Advocates working to provide shelter in the rising number of migrants arriving in Massachusetts are calling on the federal government to help. Immigration attorney Rachel Shelf tells WBOR's Radio Boston that work requirements for new immigrants need to be relaxed. And until the government solves that issue, which truly is, from my perspective, the genesis of all of this, all of these agency problems, all of these organization overburdening, you're going to continue to have those problems. This week, Boston Medical Center stopped allowing new arrivals from seeking shelter in its emergency room overnight. Immigration advocates say the hospital drove some families to Logan Airport because it's always open. It has restrooms and places to buy food. Vice President Kamala Harris will attend the National NAACP conference in Boston later this month. The group's leaders say they hope the vice president will address how the Biden administration is addressing key issues for black Americans. Congresswoman Anna Presley and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton are also expected to attend the conference. It begins July 20th. 26th. Warm, breezy, dry this afternoon. Some stormy weather could move in tonight. We could have heavy rains at times, about 72 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, the sunshine takes the day off. Showers, maybe a thunderstorm in the afternoon, not quite as warm, around 82 degrees. Warm right now, 88 degrees in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The Food and Drug Administration has approved the first over-the-counter birth control pill. The daily oral contraceptive is called Opil, and NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to tell us all about it. Hey there. Hello. All right. So what is this? What is Opil? Is it different from existing birth control pills? Yeah, so really the newest thing about this is that it will be available without a prescription, that is, without seeing a healthcare provider first. The drug substance itself was actually originally approved for prescription use 50 years ago, so it's pretty well understood. It's a once-daily pill with pretty standard birth control side effects, headaches, cramps, bloating, things like that. The big thing here is that making it available over-the-counter in drugstores and convenience stores and supermarkets should make it a lot more accessible. Right, which has taken on new significance in light of the changes in abortion laws that have happened over this last year, right? 
Right. So since Dobbs, the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade last year, some states have effectively made abortion illegal. So people who don't want to be pregnant need more options for prevention. This pill is aimed at reducing barriers to hormonal birth control for people who can't get to a doctor, are between medical appointments, are teens and maybe unable to get access to reproductive health care. It's also more effective than other things available over the con counter, like like condoms. And that's why medical societies like the American Medical Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics are applauding the FDA. However, they say it doesn't replace the need for abortion as medical care. Is it safe? Any potential downsides mm -hmm. to making birth control pills available over the counter? So the FDA convened its panel of outside experts to advise it on this approval back in May, and the panel voted unanimously in favor of approval, saying the benefits outweighed the risks. They said that the labeling alone was enough for people to be able to use O-Pill correctly without a doctor's help. It's also a progestin-only pill, sometimes called a mini pill, because it doesn't have estrogen in it. Dr. Sarah Prager, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Washington Medical School, says that makes it even safer than other birth controls. The progestin-only pill has an extremely high safety profile and virtually no one can have a health concern using a progestin-only pill. She added that studies show people can adequately determine whether they are good candidates for birth control by looking at the label like they would for Tylenol or ibuprofen. Of course, the onus is on the person taking the pill to make sure they get a new pack when they run out because skipping doses renders the pill less effective. Two practical, practical questions, Sydney. Mm -hmm. um, when can people get it and how much mm -hmm. will it cost? So the drug maker has not yet announced its price and says it will closer to when the drug actually launches, which will be early next year. Obviously, if the price is too high, people won't be able to afford it. And the fact that it's available without a prescription will be somewhat moot. So especially for people who don't have a lot of money to spare, price is so key to access. Some prescription drugs that have become over-the-counter products are still pretty expensive. The company has mentioned that it plans to launch a patient assistance program to help people who can't afford O-Pill, but those programs are notorious for being full of hoops for patients to jump through. Ultimately, the company is running a business and needs to make money, so we'll have to wait and see. Okay, and I think you heard me, I heard you answer that first question, when people can get it. Sounds like it launches early next year. Mm -hmm, that's oh. right. Okie doke. Thank you very much, Sydney. You bet. That is NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin. Parts of Vermont are still reeling from this week's catastrophic flooding, and business owners have been hit especially hard. Jen Roberts is the co-owner of Onion River Outdoors in Vermont's capital, Montpelier. Everything was floating. You know, we, we, when we came in after the water went down enough for us to come back, everything had moved around. You know, there were boxes everywhere, jumbles of things. Stuff had floated all over the place. So, and as you can imagine, it's completely soaked. Everything is muddy and greasy and gross. She organized a community cleanup of her store, but she says that is only part of the battle. We don't even know if this building is going to be able to be cleaned out and dried well, and then at that point, is it going to be structurally sound? There's a lot that we don't know yet. And it's that uncertainty that's been hardest to navigate. I worried about it a lot the night that everything was flooding. How are we going to do this? But in the middle of the night, you worry about things that in the daylight seem a little bit more optimistic. And I, 
I, I do trust that we will be able to put this back together. You know, we did after COVID and we managed to recover. So I trust that we, we will do that again. Another key part of Vermont's economy has also been impacted by the floods, agriculture. Eric Seitz runs Pitchfork Farm in Burlington, Vermont, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. Eric, can you uh, describe your farm for us and tell us what it looks like right now? Yeah, sure. So uh, we're a 30-acre vegetable farm. We focus on a lot of relatively quick turnaround crops. Um, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place, and the farm was was in great shape up until Monday. Now, uh, you know, acres of peppers and winter squash, salad greens, they are all uh, dead or dying, but certainly unsellable. They're covered in debris from God knows where, from Barry, Montpelier, Huntington, Richmond. It all ends up in our field. Everything's covered in a kind of a silty clay, kind of a... I don't even know what it is, some kind of sludge. So what's your farm? What happened to your farm? Well, it's there. <laughs> the land is still there, I assume. Uh, I actually haven't been out to see it today, but um, the last two days we've been canoeing around it, which is oddly, bizarrely beautiful. And uh, yeah, it's 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 just all gone. You know, the whole, the whole year's worth of work. It's, I assume, either washed away the, those crops that were sort of directly near the the really fast-flowing water or the crops that were more just under six feet of water. Either way, we can't sell any of it, but more than likely, they're all perished anyway. And how big are the losses that you're facing? Um, Well, I'd conservatively estimate somewhere around 350 to 400,000 in lost crop sales. Yeah. And so what does that mean for your farm, you know, going forward? Well, you know, we incur a lot of debt in the spring. It's an investment that we know will pay off come September and October. That return on investment probably will not happen this year, but the, the debts remain. So when we can, when the fields dry out enough, we'll we'll continue to plant uh, quicker growing crops. Uh, I think salad greens, bunching herbs, radishes, things like that. Um, that's primarily to keep our crew afloat and to pay down debt. But as far as... Uh, the rest of it, I don't, I'm not sure. We're hearing a lot from scientists about the role that the uh, that the changing climate is playing in these kinds of storms. And, and I wonder, do you think that this storm is going to change the way that you farm? I wish it were so. Um, you know, we live in a, a relatively uh, expensive state as far as uh, real estate. I'm lucky enough that I've been at this now for 18 years and have been able to slowly grow my business and to be honest, I, I just don't know where else I could go and do this work. So for now, no, I think we'll be staying put. And, um, you know, I think we'll be uh, a little more uh, cautious in the future as far as uh, the scale of what we do and uh, probably try and incur less debt in the spring. It, it's starting to feel more and more like a gamble. But, you know, as far as uh, programmatically what we do, I just, I love it. And then it's all I know how to do. So <laughs> it's it's what I'll continue to do for now. I've been speaking with Eric Seitz of Pitchfork Farm in Burlington, Vermont. Eric, uh, I wish you and your farm a, a quick recovery. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Now to NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg, who has the backstory on a 19th century masterpiece on display at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's Whistler's mother, 
painted by James Abbott McNeil Whistler in 1871. An American, he was living in London. His mother... He adored his mother. ...lived with him. He even bumped his mistress out to make room for mom in his house. Philadelphia curator Jennifer Thompson says Mrs. Whistler scolded James for his wild bohemian ways and naughty escapades. James didn't mind. He was busy making art and getting admired. Jennifer Thompson quotes a well-known 19th century poet, playwright, and wit's comment on the great attention-loving painter. Oscar Wilde would famously say of him that Whistler spelled art with a capital I. Museum director Sasha Souter says Mother Whistler, on the other hand, looked so modest and unassuming in profile on canvas. It's almost a moment frozen in time. She wears a black morning dress, a white cap, and her hands are quietly folded on her lap. Why is she sitting? Well, apparently she originally stood, and then she found it was very difficult to hold that pose. She was 67 and not that well. It was an accident, her posing that day. A model couldn't come. Son James wanted to get to work. His loving mother agreed to do it. It's not a portrait. For him, it's an experiment with color in these very subtle tones. Somber colors, grays, blacks, a dash of pink on her skin. The title is Arrangement in Black and Gray, number one. Whistler's subtitle is Portrait of the Artist's Mother. Anna Whistler looks so severe, austere, but she's said to have been charming loved by children and her family. And this picture of her at the Philadelphia Museum of Art until the end of October is one of the best-known paintings in the world. Is it a masterpiece? My sources had careful answers. Me too. We all have mothers. We're all getting older. The painting is timeless. And masterpieces, like mothers, are in the eyes of the beholder. I'm Susan Stamberg, Washington, D.C. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks picked up more steam today. The Dow rose more than a tenth of a percent. S&P gained more than eight-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq rose more than one and a half percent. Also in local business news, Massachusetts officials estimate at least 1,000 acres of crops in the western part of the state were destroyed by this week's flooding. Massachusetts Agricultural Commissioner Ashley Randall says small farmers were hit hard. We estimate that there could be 75, at least, farms that were impacted and potentially $10 million in losses to the agricultural sector. Randall says the state's working to provide assistance to those farms that felt the impact. This is WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. Listen to WBUR anywhere you're heading this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on all that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. 
should see clouds continue to gather over the next few hours tonight. Anywhere from damp to kind of stormy, the chance of heavy rain lows about 73. Then for tomorrow, clouds hang in there, maybe some rain topping out at about 82 degrees. 88 now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We're going to take the next few minutes to talk through rising tensions in East Asia. Now, there's several things going on at once. This week, North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile that flew for a longer time than any of its previous ICBMs. The U.S., meanwhile, is expected to send a nuclear-armed submarine to the Korean Peninsula. First time in decades that's happened. And on top of that, tensions are increasing between China and U.S. allies in Asia, Japan and South Korea. So what is driving the spike in regional tensions? Well, NPR's Anthony Kuhn, who is usually based in Seoul in South Korea, but who this week is here in Washington, is here in the studio. So nice to see you, Anthony. Nice to see you in person, Mary Louise. Okay, start with Pyongyang. And these missile tests, I know it's always hard to have any visibility into what North Korea is up to, but what are they up to here? Well, they tested their newest missile this week, which is theoretically capable of hitting the U.S., uh, and they first tested this missile three months ago, and so we knew they were going to be doing more to perfect it. These missile tests happen so often that we in South Korea uh, are not not terribly startled by them, but I Hmm. will say that in May, there was one which triggered alerts on our cell phones at six in the morning and told us to seek shelter or evacuate. And for the first time, I found out that there is actually a shelter, an evacuation center in the building across the street from me. So some okay, of these so tests... You, you had to investigate where you would yes. go evacuate if you were if you were going to have to do it. Exactly. Huh. Okay, um, so that's a little bit of what is happening in the air in the region, or might be happening in the air. Um, What about this U.S. move to send a submarine? This is presumably to try to deter adversaries, reassure allies? That's right. The allies want reassurance. They're feeling nervous. However, critics say that, you know, sending the submarines is really more for show because they could fire these missiles from a far greater distance and they'd be safer, whereas they, if they travel into the shallow waters near the Korean peninsula, they'll be more vulnerable. Um, and sometimes it's actually easier to deter the adversaries than to reassure the allies. South Korea is so nervous that it has been talking earlier this year about the possibility of getting its own nuclear weapons, not relying on the U.S.'s, and the U.S. had to tamp that down. They said that will not be happening, and so that has shown the difficulty of reassuring allies. I mentioned growing tension between China and U.S. allies in Asia, specifically Japan, South Korea. What is behind that? Well, uh, both South Korea and Japan are under conservative governments that have drawn closer to each other. 
uh, closer to Washington and distance, them, distance themselves from both China and North Korea. And that has caused frictions. Uh, for example, South Korea's uh, Ch- for example, China's ambassador to South Korea, Xin Haiming, said last month to South Korea, "Do not bet against us. Do not bet against China." So they have a tricky task to try to shake Seoul and Tokyo loose from their alliances alliances with Washington instead of pushing them deeper uh, into Washington's embrace. Hmm. And meanwhile, complicating even that, there there are tensions between these two allies, between Japan and South Korea. Walk me through what's at stake there and whether that's improving. Yes. Well, uh, the U.S.'s strategy for dealing with China is centered on working with its allies, South Korea and Japan. However, what it would like which is a three-way alliance, is not what it has. It has two separate alliances in Japan and South Korea because of their historical tensions and feuds don't always work together. Now, uh, partially through the U.S.'s involvement, they, uh, South Korea and Japan have begun to mend fences, but they still have many unresolved issues. One is the issue of Japan's use of forced labor of Koreans during World War II. Many South Koreans are not happy with the deal that South Korea has proposed on this. And the, another example is the crippled Fukushima nuclear reactor from uh-huh. which Japan is going to start emptying treated wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. And South Korea's government has says that's okay. Uh, but South Korea's people are not happy with it. So all of these things uh, could pose difficulties um, for this crucial relationship that the U.S. is counting on in East Asia. Crucial relationships. It sounds like it's, it's uh, many different paths that the U.S. is going to be needing to work at once. That is NPR's Anthony Kuhn, usually in Seoul for us this week in Washington and right in front of me here in the studio. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. For thousands of athletes, old age has not been enough to keep them from competing in sports like pickleball, shuffleboard, even basketball. As Jillian Forstat from member station WESA reports, competitors at the National Senior Games are vying to take home the gold. Inside the Lawrence Convention Center in downtown Pittsburgh, roughly a dozen teams, men and women, play basketball. Half court. So it's a little bit disappointing as you're aging, can't move as quickly because that's what I am accustomed to, moving and maneuvering quicker than most people. Sheila Bingham came with her team, the Jackson Madison Elite from Jackson, Tennessee. And we actually have a player that's 82. Yeah, so she is my motivator. When I see her, I can't quit. I'm encouraged to do more and keep playing. Back in high school, Bingham led the women's team. But older female athletes at the games remember a time when school teams for girls weren't guaranteed. In the early 1970s, Jean Trimboli of Norwalk, Connecticut, was the first woman to receive a basketball scholarship to Sacred Heart University. First captain, we had six girls on the team. That was it. And, um, you know, just play the four years. And after that, where I lived and where I was from, there was nothing else. And then married and had my starting five, I call them. <laughs> the starting five, no subs. Though Trimboli remained involved in the sport, coaching and running leagues for her kids, she longed to play again. Then, at 56, she found the Connecticut Classics. Now I'm playing Sunday mornings, I play Wednesday nights, I play nationals, I play, now I can't get enough. 
The Senior Games athletes come from all 50 states and several native communities. Here for shuffleboard is Debbie Lenti Hohola, a member of the Isleta Pueblo outside Albuquerque, New Mexico. We have other Pueblos here from Jemez, Sandia, some ladies from Hickory, Apache, and yes, there's some other teams from Albuquerque area and surrounding, but because we're native, we tend to hang out with the natives. <laughs> The games are a chance to reconnect with old friends, near and far. On the pickleball courts, Sandra Woods is cooling down. I've played four times already. I've won three and lost one. For 51 years, Woods taught physical education in D.C. schools. And we played paddleball, so this was an easy transfer for me. At nearly 80 years old, Woods says she wants to inspire others to keep playing the games they love. The body is made to move. And uh, I, I'm just grateful. Grateful both for the good health that allows her to compete and for teammates turned friends. For NPR News, I'm Jillian Forstat in Pittsburgh. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Multiple states are cracking down on the drug xylazine after it began to show up in illicit opioids, but controlling the drug is causing problems for veterinarians who use it to sedate large animals. That story is coming up in just about 20 minutes on WBUR. In sports, a beloved figure in the Cape Cod Baseball League is retiring. The Chatham Anglers manager, Tom Holliday, announced today he's leaving immediately because of health problems. He didn't provide details. The 70-year-old has led the team over the past five seasons. Holiday's assistant, Martin Lees, will take over for the remainder of the season. In the forecast overnight tonight, lots of clouds around. Could get some heavy rain at times, down around 73 degrees. Tomorrow, more clouds, more scattered showers and thunderstorms. Temperatures in the low 80s. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Texas has set another unofficial record for power demand amid ongoing triple-digit temperatures there. From Texas Public Radio, Marianne Navarro has more. The state's grid operator reported average hourly demand surpassed 81,000 megawatts around 6 p.m. Wednesday. 
and the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, predicts another record could be set this week with an expected demand of around 84,000 megawatts. Areas across Texas are under excessive heat warnings, with triple-digit temperatures and heat indices as high as 114 degrees. ERCOT reports normal grid conditions and says there's enough power to meet current demand. I'm Mariana Navarro in San Antonio. The Food and Drug Administration has approved the first over-the-counter abortion pill in a major change that will broaden access for women and teenagers. The daily oral contraceptive will be available without needing a doctor's prescription. Kelly Blanchard is a reproductive health advocate who says there's lots of data showing the pill is safe for most women to use. O-Pill is a progestin-only daily birth control pill. So like many people are familiar with, it's you take one pill every day. Um, It was originally approved in 1973. It has a very long and well-established safety and effectiveness record. The birth control pill won't be available until early next year. Hormone-based pills have long been the most common form of birth control in the U.S. And women's health groups have pushed for wider access. They note that young women and those from low-income and minority backgrounds face extra hurdles getting a prescription. On Wall Street, stocks finished higher across the board today. The Dow was up 47 points. The tech-heavy Nasdaq up more than 200 points. This is NPR. Junior doctors in England have started a five-day strike for better pay. NPR's Lauren Freyer has more from London. Hospitals here are dangerously short-staffed, and hundreds of thousands of doctors' appointments are being postponed. England's junior doctors are those in their first 10 years of work. They're asking for a 35% pay raise, but the government is considering giving them 6% instead, the same as other public sector staff. This is the junior doctors' longest strike yet, and it'll be followed by another by senior doctors next week. Britain's National Health Service was established after World War II to provide free treatment for all. But it's been hobbled by years of austerity and then strained by COVID and rising costs. A record seven and a half million people are currently on hospital waiting lists here. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. Experts say climate change is threatening rice production across South and Southeast Asia as thirsty crops like rice are particularly vulnerable to the El Nino weather patterns that are heating up an already warm planet. Climate experts say the stronger El Ninos could worsen food insecurity around the globe after supplies of grain and fertilizer from Ukraine were adversely impacted by Russia's invasion of the country. On Wall Street, stocks finished higher across the board today. The Dow up about 47 points. The Nasdaq up 219. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A 12-year-old boy has been shot and killed in Mattapan this afternoon. Police say it happened inside a home. Commissioner Michael Cox says it does not appear to have been a random shooting. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu just spoke with reporters outside the home in Mattapan. In the summer, when our kids should be enjoying, having fun, playing and growing, um, this, this is especially a nightmare for a mom and uh, for a family. And I just want to send our, our deepest condolences to loved ones and family who are grieving. 
The police commissioner and the Suffolk County DA say it's too early in the investigation to talk about any details of the shooting. There have been no arrests made. Climate activists have been protesting every day in front of the state house for more than a month now. They say they won't quit until legislators and the Healy administration ban any new fossil fuel infrastructure. The activists want to stop at least 10 projects underway. WBOR's Paula Mora has more. Activists led by the group Extinction Rebellion take two-hour turns holding placards at the State House entrance. They talk to people and write daily postcards to elected officials. The group wants to stop projects like the Hanscom Field expansion in Bedford and the proposed liquefied natural gas facility in Charlton. Isaiah Shadrach has been going twice a week since the protest began in June. I'm happy to come out here once or twice a week, you know, in perpetuity. Uh, and so my only hope is that that my representatives don't force me to do that. The group says they haven't received any response yet to their demands. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. The city of Worcester announced today the West Nile virus has been found in mosquitoes collected there. While the risk level remains low, the area where the virus was detected will be sprayed next Tuesday after sunset. West Nile virus can cause flu-like symptoms and in rare cases, severe illness. No human cases of West Nile have been reported this year. Eight cases were confirmed last year. In the forecast, generally cloudy skies tonight. Shouldn't rain for long, but when it does, we could get pelted. Temperatures about 73. Then for tomorrow, clouds, scattered showers, only making it to the low 80s. Right now, still 88 degrees in Boston at 437. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. The World Health Organization is expected to release two reports later this evening on aspartame. The artificial sweetener is used in diet sodas that many Americans love to drink, and in lots of jams, yogurts, and chewing gum. But in recent years, some scientists have raised questions on whether aspartame is helpful for weight management and whether there might be health risks, including a possible link to cancer. NPR's Ellison Aubrey joins us now. Hi, Ellison. Hey, Adrian. Good to be here. Aspartame has been on the market for decades, so why are scientists looking into it now? Well, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has long said aspartame is safe, but in recent years there have been two questions, I'd say. Does it really help people avoid sugar and manage weight? And is there some kind of long-term risk, which may only show up decades after people consume it? There have been a few studies that show people who consume the highest amounts of aspartame have a slightly higher risk of certain cancers. So scientists at the World Health Organization decided to review all the evidence and make some determinations, and that's what we're anticipating later this evening. It does seem, Allison, that after nearly 
50 years, scientists would already have the answer to this question. Yeah, well, there have certainly been a lot of animal studies over the years, and the FDA says there's a lot of evidence to show it's safe. But when it comes to studying the effect and exposure in people over time, Dr. William Dayhut, he's the chief scientific officer at the American Cancer Society, told me there are some gray areas. Well, I think there's actually been very little research, surprisingly. Most of the research, the ones that show that, you know, a, a possible, a very limited link to cancer, have potential confounders. So I think I think that's one issue. For example, a French study published last year that included about 100,000 people did point to a slight increased risk of breast and obesity-related cancers among people who consumed the highest levels of aspartame. But there have also been studies in the U.S. that don't find a link. So it's actually quite tricky to identify an independent risk. And most of the time, the researchers have not been able to track aspartame consumption over time to know how much people are really consuming. So on one hand, and aspartame is well-studied, but there are still unanswered questions. Well, the reason that a lot of people consume aspartame, sweetened drinks or food, presumably, is, is to avoid sugar and to manage their weight. So what does the research say about this? Uh, is it helpful to people who want to reduce body weight? I think it depends on who you ask and which studies you look at. Here again, there's some conflicting evidence. I've reported on studies going back 10 years or so that found swapping high-calorie sugar-sweetened sodas for zero-calorie options can be helpful for a kind of obvious reason. You're cutting back on calories. But it turns out it may be a lot more complicated than that. In recent years, there are studies showing that artificial sweeteners may, in some people, increase appetite or cravings. In one small study, women ate more food after they consumed artificially sweetened drinks compared to when they drank regular sugar-sweetened drinks. Interesting. Why is that? Well, there's an idea that perhaps the body is tricked somehow when we taste artificial sweeteners to think, hey, sugar is coming. And when it doesn't come, we seek it elsewhere. So perhaps in the long run, it's not helpful. And it may just depend on the person. There's also some suggestion that artificial sweeteners can alter our microbiomes in a way that may increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. And back in May, the World Health Organization concluded that there's no evidence of a long-term benefit of consuming artificially sweetened drinks. That's NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thanks for your reporting. Thanks, Adrian. Good to be here. For thousands of athletes, old age is not keeping them from competing in sports, including pickleball, shuffleboard, even basketball. As Jillian Forstadt from member station WESA reports, competitors at the National Senior Games are vying to take home the gold. Hundreds of protesters packed the Iowa Capitol Rotunda on Tuesday morning as the Republican-led legislature prepared to pass a six-week abortion ban. Marie Fitch was there to show support for the bill passed in this marathon of a one-day special legislative session. People say, oh, you can't be a one-issue one voter. Oh, yeah, you can. Fitch is a Republican and plans to participate in the 2024 Iowa caucuses. She says for her, it all comes down to a candidate's strict stance on abortion. I don't have my mind made up. What I want to hear is that they are honestly pro-life and intend to protect the least of our brothers and sisters, the babies in the womb who have a right to life. While evangelical Christians were outnumbered by protesters opposing the bill, they make up a large subset of Republican voters here who can help propel a campaign to a victory on caucus night. 
But not every clergy member who showed up supports the six-week abortion ban when many don't even know they're pregnant. John Chaplin is a local pastor with the United Church of Christ. He calls the legislation disturbing. It's as if the legislators are taking their own personal religious views and trying to transfer it onto the general public. When the general public, 61% of Iowans favor safe abortion. Chaplin is referring to a March poll in the Des Moines Register. While supporting strict abortion bans could help a politician in a primary, it could be a vulnerability in a general election. At a campaign stop in Iowa last week, Donald Trump took credit for overturning the guaranteed right to an abortion, reminding the crowd that he appointed three justices to the Supreme Court. They ruled against Roe v. Wade, giving pro-lifers a tremendous power to negotiate. And moving this issue back to the states. Trump enjoys a great deal of support among evangelical voters in Iowa. His former vice president, Mike Pence, is running against him and is embracing Trump's record to try and siphon some of that support away from him. I couldn't be more proud to be part of the administration that appointed three of the justices that sent Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs. Uh, but I take issue with the former president and with others who have suggested that the Supreme Court only return that question to the states. Pence will be among those attending the Family Leader Summit in Des Moines. Bob Vanderplatz heads up this evangelical Christian group and is an influential kingmaker in Republican politics here. Vanderplatz endorsed Texas Senator Ted Cruz ahead of his caucus win over Trump in 2016. No one really saw Trump coming, so we always say Cruz got trumped. This year, I think you have several candidates who are strong in conviction and who have the resources to go the distance. Trump won't be at the summit this year, and it wouldn't have been that warm of a welcome if he was. This week, Trump attacked Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds for remaining neutral in the race. And while Vanderplatz praises Trump's first term in office, he says it's time for a new nominee. There's no doubt Trump has a significant base here yet, and he'll be very difficult to beat. There's no doubt he'll be difficult to beat. But I believe his base is also his ceiling. It certainly can't hurt these other politicians to have been on stage as Governor Reynolds signs the state's new six-week abortion ban, a photo op Trump won't have as he works to hold on to evangelical voters in the First in the Nation caucus state. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Xylazine is a decades-old drug used to tranquilize large animals. Recently, drug dealers have been using it to increase the effects of illegal opioids with dangerous results. Some states are starting to crack down on the drug, but veterinarians are finding those restrictions are cumbersome for their practices. WIPR's Scott Massioni reports. All right, come on, Ernie. Come on, man. All right, come on up. So why don't you come this way? Sure. Veterinarian Dr. Justin Sabota is about to inject a drug similar to xylazine in a horse named Ernie at a farm in Maryland. Within seconds, Ernie's head is drooping and his body language becomes lethargic. Ernie's getting electrical therapy on his back leg. So sometimes I will give him more sedation than this, but he's, he's a pretty good character. And... Um, 
We're going to kind of see how he if I need to resedate him, I will. The Drug Enforcement Administration found xylazine in 11% of drug overdoses last month. The drug increases the effects of opioids, but also causes sores and further depresses vital bodily functions. Sabota says he uses the drug on his horse patients often. Now I'm going to try to lock it up a little bit more in my controlled drug box, if you will, just because of what's happening nationally. Sabota's being extra cautious for now, but some states like Ohio and West Virginia have controlled the substance in an effort to reduce human consumption. But some vets say the tactic is placing an undue burden on them and may hurt animals in the long run. Dr. Eric Gordon's a large animal vet in Ohio where the drug is controlled. Traditionally, that's one of those injectable products that I've kept right at the front of the drawer that's within the easiest reach because in some cases you need that sedation effect very, very quickly. Doctors must be registered and trained to use controlled substances. They must also properly store and dispose of them. That means reaching for xylazine to quickly subdue a bucking bronco gets more complicated. If the animal's in danger of harming itself or the people around it, Gordon needs to go through a legally required two-lock system to access the drug. But that's not the only thing vets are concerned about as states put regulations on xylazine. Dr. Jim Zeliff is a veterinarian who has a leadership role in the American Association of Equine Practitioners. It greatly increases the cost both to us when we purchase the drugs and to the owners when we use the drugs on their animals. He says his practice used xylazine 400 times in the first quarter of 2023 for things like dental work, exams, and other small procedures. Xylazine's the safest and most cost-effective way to put most large animals in a daze, leaving vets with few alternatives. Some vets are even having trouble procuring the drug. One company has already said that controlling the substance would make it too expensive and unwieldy to market, ultimately increasing the cost for vets and animal owners or making it unavailable altogether. Ohio vet Dr. Eric Gordon also serves as the president of the state's Veterinary Medicine Association. I have talked to some veterinarians in Ohio that just discontinued dispensing xylazine to their large animal clients because it's just a headache that they don't necessarily want to have to, to deal with down the road. While some states have taken action on their own, the White House and Congress are currently looking at ways to walk the tightrope of restricting xylazine while still making it available for veterinarians. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices, catering your office lunch in greater Boston, lacuchara.com. After a nice day today, we could have stormy weather moving in overnight tonight. Heavy rain at times, about 72 for a low. Tomorrow, sunshine takes the day off. Showers, maybe a thunderstorm tomorrow afternoon, not quite as warm, about 82 degrees. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, unionized actors are about to go on strike. What they say is worth striking for. Again, coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline. Embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. 
and Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And we're going to hand things right off now to our colleague, Rachel Martin, for another conversation from her series about building a life of meaning. It's called Enlighten Me. Sarah Hurwitz grew up in what she would describe as a culturally Jewish home. Her parents weren't religious, but they sent her to Hebrew school because that's sort of what was expected. And they genuinely wanted her to understand her heritage and to feel part of a Jewish community. But it didn't really take. By the time I became a bat mitzvah, I was like, you know, thank you. It's been great, but there's really nothing to see here. Right? That, mm-hmm. was, that was my feeling at age 13. It's like I did what I needed to do, and then it was I was ready. And if I wanted to find meaning or spirituality, I figured I'd just have to look elsewhere. But elsewhere never materialized. In her 30s, Sarah was at the pinnacle of her career as a political speechwriter, working in the White House, writing for President Barack Obama. Despite all that, she was craving a deeper sense of meaning in her own life. And she found it right back where she started. She told her story in a book. It's called Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. Yes, it's a long title. Even she knows that. And one of the many things that's great about Sarah Hurwitz is that she doesn't make her discovery of Judaism into some big epiphany. What actually happened is at the age of 36, I broke up with a guy I was dating. I was just kind of lonely and anxious. I happened to hear about an intro to Judaism class being offered at the D.C. Jewish Community Center. And I thought, like, oh, that'll fill a Wednesday night. <laughs> I swear it could have been ceramics. It could have been karate. I literally thought that will fill a Wednesday night. And I thought, well, I'm a cultural Jew. I guess I should know something about my culture. And, you know, what blew me away was studying the texts that we were studying in that class, texts about Jewish ethics, about life cycle rituals and holidays and spirituality. And I thought, where has this been all my life? This is 4,000 years of crowdsourced wisdom from millions of my ancestors about what it means to be human, about how to be a good person, how to live a worthy life. She started to dabble. A few classes here and there, when she could fit it in. She was still working at the White House. Conversations with some rabbis, a lot of books, and then she started looking around online for what she thought was maybe the next step for her in this exploration. I happened to search meditation retreat, and I found this Jewish meditation retreat online entitled Awakening the Divine, which struck me as such a ridiculous title. I was like, (laughs) I cannot tell my White House colleagues, like, oh, I'm going to a retreat called Awake. I mean, I sort of, you know, swallowed my skepticism and signed up, and it turned out to be quite amazing. So you decide that you're going to do this... And as part of this experience, they introduce you to the practice of heat bodedut. Yeah. Explain what that is. So the idea is that you go out into nature, somewhere where no one can hear you, and you speak out loud to the divine without stopping. So it has to be out loud, not in your head. For how long? I think we did it for maybe half an hour. That's a long time. Yeah. I mean, I thought this was so stupid. I, <laughs> I couldn't, you know, I troop out to the woods and I'm like, hi, God. You don't exist. I don't believe in you. There's, there's no you. What am I doing? This is stupid. I'm that like, is what you said. Yeah, yeah. As yeah, part yeah. of your... Yeah. I was like, the nature is nice. You do good work. I mean, I was just kind of being a jerk. Like, I yeah. was like, I don't snide. And I just I just got like more and more frustrated. I was like, this is stupid. Why am I here? And I found myself getting really agitated and upset and just getting more and more emotional. And I was like, I don't know. That's all I could say. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And I just was saying that over and over again until I just said, like, I don't know, but I just, like, I can't do this alone. 
And I was so astounded and I started to cry and I just thought like, I don't know what that was about. It makes me almost hesitant because it will imply, I think, to some people, it's like, finally she realized she needs to depend on God for things and ask God for things and realize that God's in control of things and is, you know, you know, doing Jesus, take things. the wheel. Right. And that is... Or not Jesus for you, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> but that's the idea. But that's exactly the idea, right? That there is someone in charge and they're planning everything out and I just have to accept it. And I don't buy that. I mm-hmm. didn't then. I don't now. I was interested in what you said to the rabbi when you got back from that first experience in the woods, you told him, like, that didn't feel good. I don't know what I'm doing. It still feels ridiculous to talk out loud to some God thing. Yeah. Tell me what he said. He just said, Sarah, have you ever been to a black church? And I don't think he knew I'd, I'd worked in democratic politics for years. So I was taken aback. And I thought, I said, yes, I've actually been to many of them. And he said, what do you think they're doing there? I was like, well, I mean, they're talking to God, right? And he said, do you think that's absurd or ridiculous? I was like, no, I think it's beautiful. And he said, so why is what you were doing any different than that? And I thought, that's so interesting that I can be so moved and impressed by other people doing this, but somehow I've so internalized this idea that there's something foreign about it. And there's not, right? This is native to my tradition as well. You acknowledge that you've learned a lot from other spiritual traditions, but you don't love the idea of a spiritual buffet, so to speak. And of course, this resonates with me because as someone who was raised in the Protestant church as like God-fearing Presbyterians, and that doesn't fit with me anymore. And so... I'm like eating at the spiritual buffet, Sarah. I'm like a little Buddhist meditation over here, a little side of Catholic guilt over here, <laughs> some Jewish mysticism. Um, so talk to me about what you do not love about yeah. that idea. Ultimately, what makes me a little bit nervous about the spiritual buffet is what you're kind of doing is you're like, oh, I'm going to take this thing from Buddhism that's so me, and this thing from Judaism that's so me, and this thing from Catholicism, it's just so me. 100%. Is right? what I'm doing. <laughs> Which is, no, and this is, and right, this is what so many of us do. And at the end of the day, you're kind of just reinforcing you. Mm. You are kind of, you're defying yourself, right? Like you're kind of saying like, okay, Whoa. what, you know, it's like what reinforces my, my pre-existing beliefs? Yeah. Which is how we consume social media, right? It's like I want to follow the people who I like and who tell me how great I am. But that's not really the purpose of these great spiritual traditions. The purpose is actually to say, you know what? You are infinitely worthy. You are amazing. And also, like, you sometimes do things that are actually unkind or that are cruel or that are insensitive or impatient. And we're going to actually gently and lovingly show that to you and invite you to do better. So you think you don't get that accountability mechanism. You don't. You think that you don't self-select into those parts of the faith. That's exactly right. You know, you're picking and choosing the parts that move you, right? That that make you feel good. And that's not the only purpose of these spiritual traditions. The purpose is actually to challenge you, to push you, to kind of help you see where you're falling short a little bit. And look, we don't like to hear that. We don't. You know, we just don't. And, And I think any of these, you know, very old vetted traditions, I think any of them, if you kind of step into them as a complete system, they're going to give that to you. You may not like it, but they are going to give it to you. Yeah. The book is called, it's long, Sarah. The book is called 
here all along. Finding meaning, spirituality, and a deeper connection to life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there. It was such a pleasure to talk such with you. Such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics presenting The Miracle Club, a new film starring Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, and Laura Linney about four women who travel to Lourdes in search of a miracle. Starts Friday everywhere, only in theaters. From Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org slash beachbooks. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Hollywood actors will join writers on the picket line after contract talks collapsed. We'll hear from a chief negotiator for SAG-AFTRA about the decision by the Actors' Union to strike. Today is Thursday, July 13th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, how the COVID anti-vaccination movement has helped fuel the presidential campaign of anti-vaxxer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. The global pandemic made vaccines and disease the conversation. It was able to propel Kennedy in a way that he was probably would not have been able to if the pandemic never happened. Also, gangs have taken over much of Haiti, and the United Nations Security Council is set to vote soon on whether it should send international troops to the country. These stories and the forecast and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Hollywood Actors Union is on strike, marking the first joint walkout writers and actors in decades. Ongoing negotiations broke down last night between SAG-AFTRA and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. In a fiery speech in Los Angeles today, union president Fran Drescher said members will remain off the job until a fair contract can be achieved. The jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect. You share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. Despite the 11th hour intervention of a federal mediator, the Actors Guild failed to reach an agreement. NPR's Mandalay Del Barco has more on the dispute between the two sides. 
Federal mediators monitored the final hours of the negotiations before the contract expired. The two sides were reportedly at odds over how much compensation performers should get in residuals from the streaming platforms and the use of artificial intelligence in shows and movies. Union actors are expected to join the picket lines with screenwriters from the Writers Guild of America. They walked off the job over similar issues at the beginning of May. Under the strike rules, union performers will not be able to publicize any movies or shows they're in. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. NPR Newsroom staff are members of SAG-AFTRA but are not subject to the contract in dispute. The United States Secret Service completed its investigation into how a small baggie of cocaine got into the White House earlier this month. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports the agency says it was unable to identify who was responsible. The Secret Service says it conducted forensic testing and other analysis after a powdery substance was found in a lobby area in the White House on July 2nd. FBI lab results confirmed it was cocaine, but could not detect fingerprints or DNA. There was no surveillance video of the area that could help determine who deposited the cocaine. After a briefing on Capitol Hill, Republicans are calling the investigation a cover-up, without evidence, saying the White House has multiple security layers. The Secret Service says the investigation is closed due to a lack of physical evidence. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. A federal jury has announced that the man convicted of killing 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018 is now eligible for the death penalty. In the next phase, a jury will hear additional evidence and testimony on whether Robert Bowers should be sentenced to death or life in prison. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A 12-year-old boy died this afternoon after he was shot inside a Mattapan home. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden says the investigation is in the early stages. At this point, I think people can rest relatively assured that we don't believe there's any threat to uh, future public safety this time. But other than that, we can't comment on the specifics. There have been no arrests. The boy was pronounced dead at the hospital. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu thanked the first responders who attempted to revive him. Wu says crisis counselors are now being made available in the neighborhood. A new flood watch goes in effect tonight for much of Massachusetts. The rain could begin late tonight and continue off and on through the weekend. National Weather Service meteorologist Kyle Peterson says thunderstorms could let loose with up to two inches of rain over the next three days. All the rain we've had have, um, will make it a lot easier for heavy rain to cause flash flooding um, than it would if it were, you know, had been dry outside. Um, and also, this is going to affect um, our rivers, like the Connecticut River. The Connecticut River is near flood stage in Western Mass. For the first time, you'll be able to buy a birth control pill without a prescription. Kelly Blanchard is president of Cambridge-based IBIS Reproductive Health. She says today the Food and Drug Administration's approval will save women time and money by not having to turn to a doctor. This access to a pill directly over the counter will mean that people can have vastly different access to a highly effective birth control method. Congresswoman Catherine Clark and Ayanna Presley are calling on the Food and Drug Administration to approve a major, calling their approval a major step forward in health care equity. Vice President Kamala Harris will address the NAACP National Convention in Boston. In making the announcement today, NAACP President and CEO Derek Johnson says he's confident that the vice president will help motivate people to continue the fight for racial justice. 
Former First Lady and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is also set to speak. The 114th National NAACP Convention in Boston runs from July 26th to the 2nd of August. In the forecast, 86 degrees right now. It's been a nice day overnight tonight. Could be damp in some areas, could be stormy in others. A chance of heavy rains, about 73 degrees. And then for tomorrow, look for more clouds around, more rain. Highs about 82 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 507. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Hollywood actors have gone on strike, the biggest strike to hit the film and TV industry in decades. The jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect. That's actor Fran Drescher calling out the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the group that represents major studios and streamers. Drescher is now president of SAG-AFTRA. The union walked out today after negotiations with studios collapsed. The strike by SAG-AFTRA's 65,000 performers on top of an ongoing strike by Hollywood writers means Hollywood is effectively shut down. I want to bring in Duncan Crabtree Ireland. He's National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator for SAG-AFTRA. Uh, he has been key in these talks. Uh, and uh, I'd like to first mention that NPR employees are also members of SAG-AFTRA, but we are not on strike because broadcast journalists are covered uh, under a different contract. That said, uh, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, can you give us the top reason that negotiations with the studios have fallen through? Sure. And, th- and thanks for having me on, Adrian. Uh, yeah, the top reason really is that the companies have been unwilling to engage on the key issues that are the center of these negotiations, whether it's um, their refusal to agree to um, to increases in minimum salaries to make sure that our members are making, uh, the, you know, not making less money today than they were making in 2020, whether it's the insistence on um, ignoring our proposals regarding sharing money in the streaming world, or whether it's their insistence on proposals in artificial intelligence that uh, really don't provide the kind of protection that our members expect and need against the unrestrained use of that technology. I'm looking at the statement that the group representing studios in these contract negotiations has just put out, and they say that this strike is your fault, that you've walked away from their offer of big pay increases, the most in 35 years, according to them, uh, a 76% increase in the residuals that actors will earn from streaming services, improvements to health and pension plans, and they say that they are offering protections against artificial intelligence in the industry. Uh, What do you say to that? Well, I say that's a whole bunch of spin that's just not accurate. I mean, one of the so-called protections that they offered us two days ago in artificial intelligence is that our background actor members uh, would uh, work for one day, get paid for one day, have their bodies scanned, and then the company would have the right to use that scan, not just for that project, but for any project ever in the future for eternity without any consent 
and without any compensation. So if that's the kind of protections that they're offering in artificial intelligence, then I think we are going to have to think again. And as far as these so-called, uh, you know, amazing wage increases, they're offering a 5% wage increase in the first year, which doesn't account for inflation in any way, as any of us who are out here working for a living know. And so our members will be behind the times. They will be working in 2026 for less money they, in real dollars than they made in 2020. It's, it's, it's just not true. As I said earlier, this strike is the biggest to hit Hollywood in decades. Uh, and if previous strikes are a guide, this could cost the industry billions of dollars. Uh, many of your actors are not high-paid actors. Like you said, you're working actors. So how That's is right. SAG-AFTRA planning to mitigate the impact of this strike on your membership? Well, first of all, our members know precisely the risk that we're taking in doing and going on strike. And it's a risk that is worth taking because what we're fighting for is existential. It's the protection from AI, it's basic fairness, it's economic fairness. And so our members, you know, they are ready. Uh, that's demonstrated by the 98% yes vote we received on our strike authorization from a larger turnout than we've ever had in the history of this union. As far as what the union's going to do to help our members, we have an emergency assistance fund that's set up through our foundation, and our members will have recourse in the event of that. But the, the, the harm caused by this strike is going to be mm -hmm. significant, but the companies have the key. They could have signed the deal okay. yesterday, and they can come back to the table anytime. I've been speaking with Duncan Crabtree, Ireland National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator for SAG-AFTRA. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Adrian. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is challenging President Joe Biden for the 2024 Democratic presidential nomination. He is the latest member of a storied political dynasty to seek the White House. He is also one of the most prominent voices in the anti-vaccine movement. For decades, that put Kennedy on the fringes of public discourse. During the height of the COVID pandemic, it got him banned from some social media sites. And that, Kennedy says, is motivating his presidential run. This is what happens when you censor somebody for 18 years. NPR Shannon Bond has been following these early weeks of Kennedy's campaign. She's here now. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. All right. What are we hearing from Kennedy on the campaign trail? Well, you know, he launched this campaign pledging to heal the political divides in America and fight collusion. And he's been out there, you know, giving tons of interviews. He's on podcasts. He's talking to magazines, TV networks. And these interviews are just full of conspiracy theories, misleading and even outright false claims. And many of these are things he's been saying for years. So he has claimed that chemicals in the water supply could be turning children transgender. He claims Wi-Fi causes cancer and what he calls leaky brain. He's even suggested that AIDS may not be caused by HIV. And he's repeated his longest false running, running claim, his longest running false claim, that vaccines cause autism. And of course, Mary Louise, there's no credible evidence for any of this. But you know, listening to him, it all adds up to this very conspiratorial worldview, this idea that they, whether it's the government, pharmaceutical companies, the media, are lying to you but he's telling the truth. When you say Kennedy has been embracing conspiracy theories for years, and, and we said he's been shunned for that by, by many circles for years, what, what is driving him to prominence today? Yeah, I mean, it, you're exactly right. Those views really did sideline him from the mainstream for a long time. But then COVID happened, and the pandemic really gave an opening for Kennedy and other anti-vaccine activists to gain traction. Here's how Colina Coltai put it. She's a researcher who studies the anti-vax movement. The global pandemic made vaccines and, you know, uh, disease like the, the conversation, right? And everyone's online. It was able to propel, I think, Kennedy in a way that he would probably would not have been able to if the pandemic never happened. 
know, so, so during COVID, you know, he was very critical about how the government handled the pandemic. And he aligned himself with many of these criticisms we heard from the political right, right, opposing mask and vaccine mandates and school and business closures. Kennedy also falsely claimed that COVID vaccines were unsafe and promoted debunked alternative treatments. And you know, that ultimately was what led to him losing some of those social media accounts. Oh, and did that losing social media accounts, did that actually end up getting him more attention? Well, it, it did. And I think it kind of gave him common cause, right, even more common cause with some of these figures on the right. So he's described being banned from social media as censorship. He accuses the Biden administration of playing a role in getting him deplatformed. And you know, these are complaints we hear from conservatives. And this is what has set the tone for his presidential run, which is now giving him an even bigger platform than he had with COVID. Well, I guess the central question here is this getting him anywhere with voters? Right. I mean, many of these views are very out of step with with mainstream Democrats, especially vaccines, which, you know, Americans support largely across political parties. Now, the polls do show him gaining some support. Of course, he is still well behind President Biden. And it's hard to know. It's very early. Right. You know, it's interesting as he's campaigning to the degree that he's doing in-person campaigning. He's appeared at many libertarian, even conservative events. Those are not the places you'd expect to reach Democrats. Yeah. Um, you know, our colleagues at New Hampshire Public Radio have reported there's not much of a ground campaign in New Hampshire, which is, you know, traditionally the first primary. Where where Kennedy does have support is among his fellow anti-vaccine activists and anti-establishment types. He's also been embraced by wealthy tech executives, including Elon Musk and Twitter founder Jack Dorsey and some of uh, venture capitalists who see Kennedy as a contrarian free thinker. He also has the support of Trump allies Steve Bannon and Roger Stone. They've encouraged this challenge to Biden. So Mary Louise, you know, even as a long shot candidate, Kennedy's views are out there. They're getting attention, which is exactly what he wants. And Pierre Sean in Bond. Thank you. Thanks so much. The United Nations Security Council is expected to vote tomorrow to extend the U.N.'s work in Haiti. But the council has yet to decide whether to send international troops. Gangs have taken over much of the country, and the U.N. has been warning for months that the country is on the brink. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Maria Isabel Salvador has been the lead U.N. official on Haiti for just a few months. She knew this was going to be a tough assignment. Gangs control much of Haiti's capital, so she can't move around much. But she says coming from Ecuador, she understands the problems that plague Haiti. I have some advantage in the sense that all the things that happen in Haiti happen in the rest of the continent and in my own country, in Ecuador. With one very important difference is that, of course, the situation in Haiti is extreme, but the problems are the same. Political problems, poverty and insecurity. The U.N. special representative fears that Haiti is heading to, as she puts it, a point of no return. And she's urging the U.N. Security Council to approve an international force. She knows many Haitians were initially skeptical, given Haiti's long history of failed interventions. But I can assure you that the great majority of Haitian people want this force because they know that the Haitian National Police will not be able to provide the security they need to have a normal or more or less normal living. But the U.N. has been talking about this since last fall, and no country has offered to lead such a force. Salvador was here in Washington to get an update on U.S. efforts. Mainly the United States have been trying to find a country uh, who would uh, be ready to take the lead. And, of course, that is a requirement. Uh, if there's no country taking the lead, it is going to be very difficult to, f- to have this uh, multilateral non-UN international force. 
The U.S. tried to convince Canada or Brazil to take the lead and is now looking to countries in Africa and Asia. The other possibility is a formal U.N. peacekeeping force. Either way, it will require another Security Council resolution and another debate. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, ransomware attacks are on the rise in 2023. We'll find out why. Stocks picked up more steam today. The Dow rose more than a tenth of a percent. S&P gained more than eight-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq was up more than one and a half percent. A major figure in Boston advertising is retiring. Hill Holiday CEO and Chair Karen Kaplan has announced she's leaving the agency after four decades, Kaplan has led Hill Holiday for the past decade. She started as a receptionist in the early 80s. This is WBUR. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org answers. And Avita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical, about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón, now through July 30th, amrep.org. Former Boston Bruins coach Bruce Cassidy brought the Stanley Cup to Milton today to help a close family friend raise money for a new charity. Cassidy and his Vegas Golden Knights clinched the cup last month in his first season as coach and the first season after the Bruins fired him. The coach says he wants to help the foundation that honors 13-year-old Cassidy Murray. She died in a water tubing accident last year in Aruba. Cassidy said he can't imagine the pain the girl's parents are experiencing. I'm sure they'd want to trade places with their daughter in a heartbeat, but they've got to, as they say, they got to, they have to have hope and they got to move on. The new foundation offers mental health services to people struggling to cope with the loss of a loved one. And a major figure in Cape Cod Baseball's league is retiring. The Chatham Anglers announced today that manager Tom Holliday is leaving immediately because of his health. No details were provided. The 70-year-old Holliday has led the team over the past five seasons. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness, available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. Time now for some science news from our friends at NPR's shortwave podcast. Regina Barber and Jeff Brumfield are here now for Science Roundup. Hey, you two. Hello. Hey. Okay, so as usual, you have brought us three stories this week of science in the news. Uh, So give us a tease. So we've got a story about a half a billion year old sea squirt that might have us rethink when vertebrates came about. A way to use mosquitoes to fight malaria and a Copper Age Spanish leader. Okay, so Regina, you go first. Uh, Researchers have been studying the fossil of something you called a sea squirt. Yeah. So recently, researchers at Harvard published a paper in Nature Communications detailing a newly identified 
super old, very well-preserved species of sea squirt. And if you're like me, you're wondering, what is a sea squirt? Yes, I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, they're a type of small tube-shaped creature, and they're part of a category of animals called tunicates. And tunicates, obviously, you know this, Adrian, but just for our audience, yes, are obviously. very cool. Uh, they have this precursor spinal cord, and they're the closest invertebrate relative that we vertebrates have. Okay. Yeah, they've been around for a half a billion years, but because they're squishy and soft, it's hard to find fossils of them which means there's almost no traces of it in the fossil record. But recently they found this thing hiding out in the collections vault of the Natural History Museum of Utah in Salt Lake City. I spoke to one of the paleontologists on the paper, Karma Nanglu. He says that this fossil is... Essentially, the only tunicate in the fossil record that can tell us anything about their early evolution. So this thing is a half a billion years old. What does it tell us today? Yeah, so like Jeff said, tunicates and humans share a common ancestor. So this fossil can tell us maybe what that common ancestor looked like, but also tells us that it might be older than we thought. But I've got to wonder, do we humans still have anything in common with a sea squirt? Yeah, we do, actually. The soft tissues in modern-day sea squirts share some gene regulatory pathways with the muscles in your heart. Huh. So the heart beating in your chest right now is genetically linked in a distant way to this creature from half a billion years ago. And what's even more exciting is Karma Nanglu says that there could be other fossils like this one already in museums, sitting in cabinets, waiting to be found, and that could be like striking gold. There's definitely gold inside there, it's, and you have to prospect for it kind of like gold. You gotta open some of the cabinets that maybe don't sound so exciting. And then sometimes you hit a story like this. I can almost imagine the TV show, you know, the, the, the sea squirt hunters. <laughs> I love it. All right. For our second story, let's, let's talk about mosquitoes uh, and the diseases that they help spread, uh, specifically malaria. Jeff, I understand that there is new research that might one day make mosquitoes less prone to carrying that disease. That's right. Researchers have managed to genetically engineer mosquitoes to produce their own malaria-fighting antibodies. So just to remind everyone, malaria is caused by a parasite. The parasite grows in humans, gets into the blood, and makes us really sick. And then mosquitoes carry the parasites from person to person. But it doesn't make the mosquitoes ill. Okay, wait, let me just be clear here. The mosquitoes carry all these malaria parasites, but because they don't get sick from that parasite, their immune systems don't, don't bother to fight it? Until now, that's right. These researchers figured out a way to genetically modify the mosquitoes so that they naturally produced antibodies that fought the malaria parasite. They used technology called CRISPR that lets scientists precisely edit the genetic code of animals. Basically, it puts the insects on the front lines of this disease. Okay, so Jeff, I'm going to stop you right there because genetically modifying wild animals can be controversial. Yeah, in this case, it is absolutely controversial. In fact, our colleague Rob Stein has reported on some other scientists who are working on ways to wipe out mosquitoes altogether, which has really stirred things up. Now, arguably, a good thing about this paper is it doesn't use that sort of gene editing technology to try and wipe mosquitoes out. Instead, it sort of turns them into allies against malaria. Of course, that also means there's a bunch of genetically modified insects flying around. And environmentalists say the risks of spreading these genes through mosquito populations far outweigh the benefits, especially when there are other technologies that can control malaria. And aside from being sort of potentially hugely controversial, I mean, there's just the question of does this does this work? Well, Anthony James of the University of California, Irvine, led the study, and he says these little skeeter antibodies do the job pretty well. They work very well. 
They reduce the number of parasites in the mosquito, uh, in, importantly in the salivary glands, which is where they would be before they're transmitted to a new human host. According to this paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, they believe that they could reduce malaria by 50 to 90 percent in some scenarios. But of course, this is still in the early stages. There's a long way to go in terms of regulation and just testing. Okay, well, for our final story, we uh, have a surprise from the world of archaeology. And I understand it's from a site, Jeff, in southwest Spain. Yes. So this goes back to a discovery in 2008. An international team of researchers have reevaluated the remains of a person who was a ruler in the Copper Age. Yeah, and when we're talking about the Copper Age, we're talking about nearly 5,000 years ago. Yeah, scientists used to think those remains belonged to a man, but now these researchers think it's more likely they belonged to a woman. They published their findings recently in the journal Scientific Reports. And uh, who was this person? Some kind of some kind of royal? Well, probably not a king or queen. This was a time before they existed in the world. The researchers think this person was more like a social leader. They were originally nicknamed the Ivory Man because of all the ivory objects found around the burial site. But now they are calling her the Ivory Lady. That seems like a pretty dramatic find. Why did it take uh, 15 years to reach this conclusion? Well, it comes down to the technique the researchers had available. Archaeologists usually determine a skeleton sex by looking at the pelvis and the skull or by looking at DNA. But when remains are this old, a lot of things get broken down. One thing that does tend to stick around are teeth. And that's because tooth enamel is actually the hardest part of the human body. So it turns out there's a small protein in tooth enamel that has two different versions, one if you have an X chromosome and one if you have a Y. So if someone is chromosomally female, they'll only have the X version of the protein, not the Y. And so I'm guessing that the researchers only saw the X version of this protein in the teeth of these remains and therefore think that it was a female? Yeah, most likely. Um, They didn't see any Y version of this protein. And while it's possible that there might have been low amounts and they weren't detected, the chances of that seem low. So what does this mean uh, for how archaeologists think about, you know, society during the Copper Age 5,000 years ago? Well, it means that women might have held more positions of power in this time than scientists previously thought. One of the scientists involved in this work, Leonardo Garcia San Juan, said sometimes the sex of half or more skeletal remains cannot be determined. And this technique could really change that. Okay, that's Regina Barber and Jeff Brumfield from NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Regina, Jeff, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
Coming up on WBUR, how climate change is upending the conventional risk measurement of the 100-year flood. A pleasant evening, generally cloudy skies overnight tonight. It shouldn't rain for long, but when it does rain, we should get drenched. Temperatures about 73 degrees. Tomorrow, more clouds, scattered showers and thunderstorms, making it to about the low 80s. 86 degrees in Boston at 530. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra, on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is in Helsinki, where he met today with the president of Finland, the newest member of the NATO alliance, along with the leaders from Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland. I think what Finland's joining NATO does, and Sweden as well, when the Nordic countries are all members of, of, of NATO, just makes the world safer. It significantly increases the prospect that there is less likely to be war. Biden's visit came one day after the NATO summit wrapped up in Lithuania, where allies discuss beefing up their cooperation with Ukraine as it resists Russia's invasion. Biden says not allowing Ukraine to join NATO while it's engaged in an active conflict with Russia won't encourage Moscow to keep fighting. He says Russia lacks the resources to keep the war going indefinitely. In Texas, a group of college professors is suing the state over its ban of TikTok on devices issued by public universities and state governments. That uh, ban cites security concerns around the popular app owned by a Chinese company. As NPR's Bobby Allen tells us, the suit argues the ban is interfering with academic research. The suit was filed by the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, and it claims Texas's ban of TikTok on state devices is seriously impeding university research about the popular video sharing app. Universities in more than 20 states have banned TikTok in various ways. The Texas suit is an effort to test the legality of such restrictions. Lawyers for the professors say academic freedom is a special concern of the First Amendment. They say Texas Governor Greg Abbott overstepped his bounds by issuing the ban. As Congress dithers on TikTok, some states have taken action. In Montana, a first in the country full ban of TikTok is set to start next year. It, too, is being challenged in court. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR. North Korea has confirmed the missile it tested yesterday is a new type of ballistic missile capable of reaching the U.S. mainland. As Sewon Gong reports from Seoul, North Korea's leader is vowing to continue its provocations in response to joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea. North Korean state media says the intercontinental missile, called Hwasong-18, flew for more than 74 minutes and reached a peak altitude of more than 4,100 miles. Hwasong-18 uses solid fuel, which means it is quicker to launch and harder to detect. 
Kim attended the test launch on Wednesday, according to the Korean Central News Agency, and praised its success. He was also quoted as criticizing the United States and South Korea for hostile actions, such as planning to send a nuclear-armed submarine to the region. For NPR News, I'm Seung-gong in Seoul. The punishing heat wave roasting the southwest is now beginning to bear down on large parts of California as temperatures here in the state's valleys and away from the coast are expected to climb well above 100 degrees. California heat uh, health officials are urging people to stay cool and hydrated and go to cooling centers if they don't have A.C. Heat waves this time of year in California are common, but forecasters say this one could be record-breaking. The extreme heat is also expected to worsen the risk of wildfires. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A New Jersey lawyer was in court today to face new charges involving sexual assaults in Boston more than 15 years ago. Matthew Nilo pleaded not guilty today to seven new charges related to attacks in the North End. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden told reporters why he did not ask the judge to consider keeping Nilo in custody while he awaits trial. Bail was used to ensure his appearance in court, ultimately, and we saw that that played out here today. These are attacks that happened quite some time ago. At this point in time, we don't believe that he poses a threat or danger to the community. Nilo pleaded not guilty to separate rape and assault charges earlier this year. He's due back in court in September. Advocates working to provide shelter for the rising number of migrants arriving in Massachusetts are calling on the federal government to help. Immigration attorney Rachel Shelf tells WBUR's Radio Boston work requirements for new immigrants need to be relaxed. And until the government solves that issue, which truly is, from my perspective, the genesis of all of this, all of these agency problems, all of these organization overburdening, you're going to continue to have those problems. This week, Boston Medical Center stopped letting new arrivals sleep in its lobby overnight. Immigration advocates say the hospital drove some families to Logan Airport because it's always open, has restrooms, and has places to buy food. The MBTA is trying to determine why a water pipe broke this morning, making it difficult for firefighters to extinguish a fire beneath a red line train. A faulty air conditioning unit on the train sparked the fire as the train was going over the Longfellow Bridge. Deputy Fire Chief James Green says the broken pipe forced his crews to use a backup plan. We brought a hose over at like the base of the, the Longfellow, and we also brought water cans up, just like basically like cans of water that we, we uh, manually carry up, and we were able to extinguish it that way. T General Manager Philip Eng says the passengers were safely evacuated once the train reached the Charles MGH station. In the forecast, cloudy overnight tonight, could have some thunderstorms, temperatures about 73 overnight. And then for tomorrow, clouds once again should have some rain off and on, topping out at about 82. 86 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Every year, for the past six decades, Congress has passed the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. Normally, it passes with overwhelming bipartisan support. This year, the proposed $886 billion bill to fund the U.S. military is stuck. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing roadblocks from members of his own party, lawmakers pushing to amend the act, specifically policies on transgender health care, diversity, and abortion. Other members of Congress are pushing back, among them New Jersey Democrat Mikey Sherrill. She's a former Navy helicopter pilot and a member of the Armed Services Committee, and she is on the line now from Capitol Hill. Congresswoman, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. Is there any move at all, or is everyone as dug in as ever today? Well, I actually just got off the floor. I was controlling time for the debate on the travel ban by Rep. Jackson. This is a ban that would take away the Department of Defense's ability to pay for women to travel and give them time off if they need to seek reproductive health care outside of the state they're stationed in. Mm-hmm. This is also, uh, just by the way, what is at stake in this hold that uh, Republican Senator Tommy Tupperville of Alabama is, uh, he's blocking hundreds of military promotions to protest this same Pentagon abortion policy. Yes, he's actually blocking all flag officer promotions right now. We now have no commandant of the Marine Corps because of that. And he's really doing so to impose his sort of far-right extremist view on service women and service members' families. And that's why I think, you know, somebody like myself, I have Picatinny Arsenal in my district. I've worked incredibly hard to support the men and women who work there. I'm also a veteran myself. And so this is the first time I'm considering voting against the Defense Act. If it gets amended in the way that some House Republicans would like to see it amended. Okay, so just to be clear, there's a couple of things going on here. We have a senator who's got a hold on hundreds of military promotions, as we said. Meanwhile, in the House, the defense bill is not getting passed. I want to step back from the politics and just ask for the military, if this continues to be held up, what are the consequences? Oh, gosh. I I mean, this is really worst case scenario. As we're continuing to try to support Ukraine, as we're looking to make sure that we deter aggression from China and places like Taiwan, as we want to make sure that our defense base is ready for any threats we have, these things are all at stake right now. And to take the far right extremist social agenda that the Freedom Caucus and the GOP has and to allow them to run roughshod It really tries to impose this agenda on the men and women who serve. You know, I mentioned, Congresswoman, this bill has passed every year for six decades, so something like 60 years, usually with overwhelming bipartisan support. What has changed this year? Well, I think what we're seeing is an attempt by far-right Republicans to enact a nationwide abortion ban. The attack on choice does not end with the overturning of Roe. Before I let you go, it occurs to me to ask you, if you were back in your old job as a Navy pilot watching from a war zone as this debate plays out on Capitol Hill, what would be going through your mind? Well, that's what's really breaking my heart right now. Here we have men and women who are depending on us, depending on me, to make sure that they get paid, that their families are taken care of. So to be at this point where you know, we're on the brink of this and trying to decide between making sure that we don't have a bill that 
is very punitive against service women and service members' families and banning their travel for reproductive health care and making sure we're paying our troops and taking care of them and getting them the best possible equipment. That's a horrible place to be. That is Democratic Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill of New Jersey. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. In Ukraine, despite some predictions, Russian cyber attacks have failed to be a major factor in the war. That said, Russian cyber criminals are ramping up attacks on the rest of the world. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin is here to tell us about current trends in ransomware attacks and how cybercrime's future is closely tied to Russia's future. Hi, Jenna. Hey, Adrian. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you. Uh, First off, remind us about the relationship between ransomware attacks and Russia. Yeah, so Russia has this really obvious reputation for having advanced cyber capabilities. They've burrowed into U.S. networks to spy. They've shut off the power grid in Ukraine years before launching a full-scale invasion. But I think maybe the more important cyber capability the Russian government has now is its close ties to cyber criminal networks, people living in Russia and in countries within Moscow's sphere of influence. So these guys break into victims' networks and encrypt their files, demanding money in exchange for unlocking them and not making them public. It's called ransom. Somewhere. The U.S. government has spoken more and more openly about this relationship. They say that the intelligence shows that Russian cyber criminals are given freedom, they're given leniency in exchange for moonlighting and acting for the Russian government. So what exactly have these cyber criminals been doing for the Russian government? So we've seen the connection ebb and flow, and a lot of that has to do with the war and what Russia needs at that moment. In 2022, there was actually a marked decrease in ransomware. And partially that's because the Russian cyber criminals were probably summoned by the government to help out in the war effort. But what's really interesting is that right now, the ransomware numbers are skyrocketing again in 2023. Here's Jackie Burns Coven, who studies ransomware for blockchain analysis company Chainalysis. 2023 is actually on pace to be one of, if not the worst year in terms of ransomware payments. So far this year, we're tracking at least $450 million in ransomware payments through June, really seeing an uptick in average demands. Wow, $450 million. That's a lot of money, Jenna. Uh, What do experts think is going on here? It is a lot. Uh, I heard a couple of interesting theories about that. The first is that Russia mired in war and licking its wounds from that recent mutiny by Russian mercenaries is giving these cyber criminals free reign to try and cause chaos around the world. Coven said it's kind of like Putin might have given a release the hounds command. You know, it's also a lot easier these days to launch ransomware attacks. There's a lot of stolen malware that's been leaked online. But the flip side of this narrative could be that Russia doesn't actually have as much control over these hackers as they might hope. Either way, one conclusion that I reached after talking to all these experts is that, you know, as long as Russia exists in its current state, ransomware probably isn't going anywhere. Well, it all sounds, you know, pretty dire. Uh, Is there anything that organizations can do about it? Yeah, so the good news is that the U.S. and its allies are having some success against ransomware. Government agencies have been able to get back some money that's been paid to ransomware gangs. They've gotten decryptor tools to help unlock files. They've even broken into ransomware gangs' internal systems and forced them to disperse and regroup later. Meanwhile, it seems like the safe space for cyber criminals near Russia is shrinking. There was a recent arrest of a Russian cyber criminal in Kazakhstan. So these guys really can't travel. They probably have to do what Russia tells them to do or else. And there is a lot of uncertainty about Russia's future right now. Plus, you know, organizations can always ramp up their cyber defenses to prevent an attack like that in the first place. 
I've been speaking with NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Thanks. You're listening to All Things Considered. Elsewhere on the program, we talked to a vegetable farmer and an outdoor goods store owner in Vermont about that state's devastating floods and all the cleanup facing them now. Some officials in Vermont are calling this week's deluge a thousand-year flood. Climate change is making events like this more common. As NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports, the words officials use when they talk about flood risk can be misleading. If you live in a flood-prone area, as tens of millions of Americans do, you've heard the words I'm talking about. We are at a thousand-year level. So called 500-year rainfall. A 100-year flood. Is this a good phrase, 100-year flood? I think it's highly confusing to people. It's based on probabilities. Alice Hill studies disaster resilience. Many people assume that if their area has experienced the one in 100 year flood, that means that for the next 99 years, they need not worry about flooding. So. And that's not the case? That's not the case. So here's what a 100 year flood does mean. It means there's a 1% chance it will happen each year. If it happens this year, there's still a 1% chance it will happen next year. As with the flip of a coin, if you flip heads twice in a row, that doesn't mean that you're going to get tails the next time. So you could have three very significant floods right in a row. That kind of thing is happening more and more frequently. For example, North Carolina got hit with two really wet hurricanes in a row in 2018 and 2019. And that prompted then-Governor Roy Cooper to say this. When you have two 500-year floods within two years of each other, it's pretty clear it's not a 500-year flood. But that's not it. Both floods had a low probability of happening. But sometimes low-probability things do happen. And Hill says the widespread confusion about basic flood probability is a big problem. We are um, leading people to be unprepared. It's not surprising that the one-in-a-hundred-year language isn't helping people prepare for flooding. It was never meant to. The hundred-year flood term was adopted by Congress back in the 1970s to describe who would be required to buy flood insurance. And researchers say there are better ways to communicate flood risk. Instead of talking about how likely a given flood is to happen each year, talk about how likely that flood is to happen over many years. For example, if there's a 1% chance of a flood happening each year, that means there's a 26% chance it will happen over the course of a 30-year mortgage. And if you live your whole life in a flood zone, you're more likely than not to experience a 100-year flood. Explaining flood probability that way helps people understand their risk over time. And the stakes are high when it comes to flood risk. In many parts of the country, flooding is getting more frequent and severe. Climate change is part of the problem. Warmer air can hold more moisture, which falls as more extreme rain. And in many places, development is also creating more runoff, all of which puts more people in harm's way, many of whom don't know they're at risk. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for being with us this evening on WBUR. Coming up, the FDA has approved the first daily birth control pill you can take without a prescription. It should be on store shelves early next year. Listen to WBUR anywhere you're heading this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on all that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village. Now playing Tony Award-winning musical Jersey Boys, the story of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. Should see some clouds gather over the next several hours. Tonight could be anywhere from damp to stormy. Chance of heavy rain, depending on where you are. Lows about 73 degrees. And for tomorrow, some clouds, some rain topping out about 82 degrees. Partly sunny along with some rain on Saturday. Then for Sunday, gray skies, showers, thunderstorms possible. About 84 on Saturday, about 80 on Sunday. 86 degrees now in the Boston area. It's 550. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Adrian Florido. An emotional silent pause from Buffalo Bills safety Damar Hamlin is what brought a massive crowd to its feet last night. It was the Excellence in Sports Performance yearly awards show, better known as the ESPYs. And with his head bowed and tears flowing, Hamlin gathered himself and approached the microphone. Please welcome this year's recipient of the Pat Tillman Award for Service, the training staff of the Buffalo Bills. From there, members of that training staff filed onto the stage and circled Hamlin, their arms stretched out to embrace him. Okay, my name is Nate Bresky. I'm the head athletic trainer for the Buffalo Bills. These were some of the same people who had surrounded Hamlin back in January when he collapsed from cardiac arrest during a game. Welcome back to Cincinnati where medical personnel have been working on Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin, for the last... After a tackle against the Cincinnati Bengals, Hamlin fell backwards. His heart had stopped. The game was postponed as fans, as the nation, watched, stunned and terrified. Right now, several players are down on their knees. Other players are holding hands, praying. You can just see the worried looks uh, on their faces. Medical professionals were able to restore Hamlin's heartbeat on the field, but he was taken to the hospital in critical condition. And then he made a remarkable recovery. By the grace of God and divine intervention, we had the best outcome we could have prayed for or imagined. That's Nate Bresky, the Bills athletic trainer again, speaking at last night's awards. He acknowledged the massive team who helped save Hamlin's life, and he issued this message. Learn CPR and how to use an AED, because they save lives. Bresky also returned the gratitude that Damar Hamlin had expressed towards him and the training staff. Damar, first and foremost, thank you for staying alive, brother. <laughs> That drew a big smile from Hamlin, who hasn't played since his cardiac arrest, but he plans to return to the field. After presenting the award last night, Hamlin tweeted, quote, a room full of greatness did it for me. (laughs) 
ending a long-term relationship is rarely easy, especially when that ending comes sooner than you had hoped. That is the premise of the new romantic comedy series Survival of the Thickest. It stars comedian and actor Michelle Buteau. Buteau plays a late 30s New Yorker who finds herself picking up the pieces of both her personal life and her career after a major and majorly messy breakup. NPR's Kira Wakim talked with her about the show. I'm Mavis Beaumont, and I have a passion for fashion. Uh-huh. That's a little much. I'm overcompensating because I'm nervous. That's Michelle Buteau as Mavis Beaumont, a fat and fabulous 38-year-old stylist working in New York. I just don't want to style celebrity clients. I want to be the person that I never had when I was younger. I want to take fashion and show those people that feel like they're on the outside that they're beautiful just as they are and that it's the world that needs to catch up to them. Buteau is also a co-creator and writer on Survival of the Thickest, which is loosely based on her 2020 memoir of the same name. The show will make you laugh out loud, but it also takes on serious themes like self-acceptance, body image, and finding your chosen family. This is also a love letter to my fatty baddies and oddy bodies to say, if you can't find it, that's okay, we'll make it. That focus on positivity and inclusion was important to Buteau, who's long been outspoken about the lack of roles for plus-size women in Hollywood, particularly in romantic comedies. She says she was constantly being cast as the best friend rather than the lead. Growing up, I did love television and film, and I always wish that I could see more representation, but I was like, well, it's just not there, you know? It's sort of just like people who didn't even know they had celiac disease. You're just like, well, I guess I'm just going to be in pain. With this show, Buteau has taken it upon herself to try to heal some of that pain. I always really loved fashion, but I never really was given a vocabulary of, like, what to do and how to do it because nothing was ever available. And so that's why it was Mavis's mission statement to say, okay, we're going to make everybody feel special and look good and walk different because you deserve that Buteau has been writing and performing comedy for more than two decades. She's been featured in films like Always Be My Maybe, Isn't It Romantic, and last year's Marry Me with Jennifer Lopez. But this is her first time playing a leading lady in a rom-com of her own. While it's taken her years to get here, she says having this opportunity come at this time in her career helped her make the show the way she wanted. Once you have gotten very comfortable with rejection, yet you still love what you do and your craft and is only getting better and you're evolving as a person and you've gone to therapy and you've done the work and you're touching your toes and drinking that water, honey, by the time it does happen, you're like, oh, okay, I am a fully realized human being and I can make these decisions without trying to make everybody happy because that happens too when you're trying to do a show, right? So I am really thankful that I'm at a place in my life where I'm just like, this is just what it is, this is what I see. You know, I wanna make sure that it is as authentic to me and my world as it's gonna be. While much of Survival of the Thickest comes directly from Buteau's own experiences, she points to her diverse writer's room for making Mavis relatable and authentic. And Mavis's attitude of self-love and acceptance was so infectious, it started to catch on behind the camera. The plus-size people in the crew were walking different. They were trying new things. They didn't even know that they could wear something like tied or cropped, right? And Buteau says she hopes the show will provide that same kind of confidence boost to audiences, too. I mean, obviously, I hope people are entertained and laugh a lot, but I also hope they, like, fall in love. Like, not necessarily, like, with a character, but perhaps themselves. Survival of the Thickest is out now on Netflix. Kira Joaquin, NPR News. 
Tomorrow on Morning Edition, Bill Barr was once a staunch defender of former President Donald Trump. Now the former attorney general is speaking out against his former boss and his alleged mishandling of classified documents. So what makes that case, for which Trump has been criminally charged, different from Trump's other legal jeopardy? The former attorney general explains on Morning Edition. You can listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy in Marlboro. Day and boarding school for grades 6 to 12. Free Innovation Studio Workshop, July 17th. NEIacademy.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A once-a-day tablet called Opil today becomes the first oral contraceptive to be sold without a prescription. The FDA's landmark decision comes as some states have tried to restrict access to birth control and abortion. Opil will be sold in drugstores, grocery stores, and online. Today is Thursday, July 13th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. There was catastrophic flooding in Vermont this week. Coming up, a vegetable farmer who watched floodwaters ruin his fields of crops. All the rain falling in central Vermont ends up running next to our field. By Tuesday morning, that field was just part of the river. Also, more than 11,000 athletes from across the U.S. have flocked to Pittsburgh to compete in the Olympic-style National Senior Games. These stories and the forecast, along with Wall Street numbers, are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is heading back to the White House after a four-day trip to Europe this week. During his visit, which included the annual NATO summit, Biden said not allowing Ukraine to join the alliance while it's at war with Russia will not encourage Moscow to keep fighting. As NPR's Ozma Khalid reports, the president also insists that Russia lacks the resources to keep the war going indefinitely. Biden was asked if he's concerned about the Ukraine war turning into a stalemate. 
My hope is, and my expectation is, you'll see that Ukraine makes significant progress on their offensive and that uh, it uh, generates an, a negotiated settlement uh, somewhere along the line. Biden's comments came in Finland, NATO's newest member. That country, which has long been non-aligned, joined the alliance in April. Biden reiterated that Americans are committed to NATO. He said both Finland and Sweden will add significantly to security and make NATO stronger. Asma Khalid, NPR News, Helsinki. Residents of Vermont are grappling with the damage caused by widespread flooding earlier this week, with more rain expected over the next few days. Vermont Public Radio's Michaela Lafrag reports state leaders are pushing for additional support from the federal government. Many streets, homes, and businesses in Barrie, Vermont, are covered in inches of mud. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell recently toured the area alongside Governor Phil Scott and the state's congressional delegation. Scott is making the case for a major disaster declaration that would unlock additional recovery funding for Vermont. He also warns that more rain is expected heading into the weekend. For the time being, we still need to focus on the response and prepare for whatever comes our way over the next couple of days. Authorities report there's been one fatality as a result of the flooding. For NPR News, I'm Michaela Lafrac in Burlington. There's fresh evidence today that inflation is losing steam. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on the latest price check from the Labor Department. Inflation at the wholesale level fell to its lowest level in almost three years last month. That report from the Labor Department follows news a day earlier that retail inflation was also down for the 12th month in a row. Stock in Delta Airlines is gaining altitude after the company reported higher-than-expected profits for the most recent quarter. Delta and other carriers are benefiting from strong demand for summer travel and falling jet fuel prices. Pepsi also reported fizzier-than-expected earnings today. Even though demand for snacks and soda pop is down, Pepsi's profits were propped up by double-digit price increases. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was up 47 points. This is NPR News in Washington. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A 12-year-old boy was shot and killed this afternoon inside a home in Mattapan. Emergency workers attempted to revive the boy, but he died at the hospital. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says crisis counselors are being made available in the neighborhood. It's a horrible tragedy for the entire city whenever any one of our young people is lost and for a child of this age, being lost to gun violence is, is a nightmare. Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden says there have been no arrests and not his, the details are not being released. Forty-five first responders from Massachusetts have been deployed in Vermont while the state recovers from massive flooding and braces for even more rain. The crews are members of Search and Rescue Team Task Force 1. It includes water rescue specialists and medical personnel who work for the state and local communities. Spokesman Tom Gazunas says that they are offering help wherever it's needed. They did a rescue of 23 individuals, 18 adults, five children, and two dogs. They were in a multifamily structure that was, had eight feet of water on one side and four feet on the other. 
Gatsuna says his team is scheduled to stay in Vermont for two weeks. Other crew members will follow if needed. Climate activists have been protesting every day in front of the Massachusetts State House for over a month now. They say they won't quit until legislators in the Healy administration ban any new fossil fuel infrastructure. WBR's Paula Mora reports the activists want to stop at least 10 projects that are underway. Activists led by the group Extinction Rebellion take two-hour turns holding placards at the State House entrance. They talk to people and write daily postcards to elected officials. The group wants to stop projects like the Hanscom Field expansion in Bedford and the proposed liquefied natural gas facility in Charlton. Isaiah Shadrach has been going twice a week since the protests began in June. I'm happy to come out here once or twice a week, you know, in perpetuity. Uh, and so my only hope is that, that my representatives don't force me to do that. The group says they haven't received any response yet to their demands. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. We've got showers and thunderstorms moving in from time to time overnight tonight, about 73 for a low. Tomorrow, pretty much the same thing. Clouds, showers, thunderstorms, although it should rise to the low 80s. The mid-80s right now, 85 degrees in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The Food and Drug Administration has approved the first over-the-counter birth control pill. The daily oral contraceptive is called Opil. And NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to tell us all about it. Hey there. Hello. All right. So what is this? What is Opil? Is it different from existing birth control pills? Yeah, so really the newest thing about this is that it will be available without a prescription, that is, without seeing a healthcare provider first. The drug substance itself was actually originally approved for prescription use 50 years ago, so it's pretty well understood. It's a once-daily pill with pretty standard birth control side effects, headaches, cramps, bloating, things like that. The big thing here is that making it available over-the-counter in drugstores and convenience stores and supermarkets should make it a lot more accessible. Right, which has taken on new significance in light of the changes in abortion laws that have happened over this last year, right? Right. So since Dobbs, the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade last year, some states have effectively made abortion illegal. So people who don't want to be pregnant need more options for prevention. This pill is aimed at reducing barriers to hormonal birth control for people who can't get to a doctor, are between medical appointments, are teens and maybe unable to get access to reproductive health care. It's also more effective than other things available over the con- counter, like like condoms. And that's why medical societies like the American Medical Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics are applauding the FDA. However, they say it doesn't replace the need for abortion as medical care. Is it safe? Any potential downsides Mm -hmm. to making birth control pills available over the counter? 
So the FDA convened its panel of outside experts to advise it on this approval back in May, and the panel voted unanimously in favor of approval, saying the benefits outweighed the risks. They said that the labeling alone was enough for people to be able to use O-Pill correctly without a doctor's help. It's also a progestin-only pill, sometimes called a mini-pill, because it doesn't have estrogen in it. Dr. Sarah Prager, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Washington Medical School, says that makes it even safer than other birth controls. The progestin-only pill has an extremely high safety profile, and virtually no one can have a health concern using a progestin-only pill. She added that studies show people can adequately determine whether they are good candidates for birth control by looking at the label like they would for Tylenol or ibuprofen. Of course, the onus is on the person taking the pill to make sure they get a new pack when they run out because skipping doses renders the pill less effective. Two practical practical questions, Sydney. Mm -hmm. Um, When can people get it and how much Mm -hmm. will it cost? So the drug maker has not yet announced its price and says it will closer to when the drug actually launches, which will be early next year. Obviously, if the price is too high, people won't be able to afford it. And the fact that it's available without a prescription will be somewhat moot. So especially for people who don't have a lot of money to spare, price is so key to access. Some prescription drugs that have become over-the-counter products are still pretty expensive. The company has mentioned that it plans to launch a patient assistance program to help people who can't afford O-Pill, but those programs are notorious for being full of hoops for patients to jump through. Ultimately, the company is running a business and needs to make money, so we'll have to wait and see. Okay, and I think you heard me, I heard you answer that first question, when people can get it. Sounds like it launches early next year. Mm-hmm, that's oh. right. Okie doke. Thank you very much, Sydney. You bet. That is NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin. Parts of Vermont are still reeling from this week's catastrophic flooding, and business owners have been hit especially hard. Jen Roberts is the co-owner of Onion River Outdoors in Vermont's capital, Montpelier. Everything was floating. You know, we, we, when we came in after the water went down enough for us to come back, everything had moved around. You know, there were boxes everywhere, jumbles of things. Stuff had floated all over the place. So, and as you can imagine, it's completely soaked. Everything is muddy and greasy and gross. She organized a community cleanup of her store, but she says that is only part of the battle. We don't even know if this building is going to be able to be cleaned out and dried well. And then at that point, is it going to be structurally sound? There's a lot that we don't know yet. And it's that uncertainty that's been hardest to navigate. I worried about it a lot the night that everything was flooding. How are we going to do this? But in the middle of the night, you worry about things that in the daylight seem a little bit more optimistic. And I, I, I do trust that we will be able to put this back together. You know, we did after COVID and we managed to recover. So I trust that we, we will do that again. Another key part of Vermont's economy has also been impacted by the floods, agriculture. Eric Seitz runs Pitchfork Farm in Burlington, Vermont, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. Eric, can you uh, describe your farm for us and tell us what it looks like right now? Yeah, sure. So uh, we're a 30-acre vegetable farm. We focus on a lot of relatively quick turnaround crops. Um, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place, and the farm was was in great shape up until Monday. Now, uh, you know, acres of peppers and winter squash, salad greens, 
They are all uh, dead or dying, but certainly unsellable. They're covered in debris from God knows where, from Barry, Montpelier, Huntington, Richmond. It all ends up in our field. Everything's covered in a kind of a silty clay, kind of a, I don't even know what it is, some kind of sludge. So what's your farm? What happened to your farm? Well, it's there. <laughs> the land is still there, I assume. Uh, I actually haven't been out to see it today, but um, the last two days we've been canoeing around it, which is oddly, bizarrely beautiful. And uh, yeah, it's 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 just all gone. You know, the whole the whole year's worth of work. It's I assume either washed away the, those crops that were sort of directly near the the really fast flowing water, or the crops that were more just under six feet of water. Either way, we can't sell any of it, but more than likely, it, they're all perished anyway. And how big are the losses that you're facing? Um, well, I'd conservatively estimate somewhere around three hundred fifty to 400000 in uh, lost crop sales. Yeah. And so what does that mean for your farm, you know, going forward? Well, you know, we incur a lot of debt in the spring. It's an investment that we know will pay off come September and October. That Return on investment probably will not happen this year, but the the debts remain. So when we can, when the fields dry out enough, we'll we'll continue to plant uh, quicker growing crops. Uh, I think salad greens, bunching herbs, radishes, things like that. Um, that's primarily to keep our crew afloat and to pay down debt. But as far as uh, the rest of it, I, I'm, I'm not sure. We're hearing a lot from scientists about the role that the uh, that the changing climate is playing in these kinds of storms. And, and I wonder, do you think that this storm is going to change the way that you farm? I wish it were so. Um, you know, we live in a, a relatively uh, expensive state as far as uh, real estate. I'm lucky enough that I've been at this now for 18 years and I've been able to slowly grow my business. And to be honest, I I, I just don't know where else I could go and do this work. So for now, no, I think we'll be staying put. And, um, you know, I think we'll be uh, a little more uh, cautious in the future as far as uh, the scale of what we do and uh, probably try and incur less debt in the spring. It's starting to feel more and more like a gamble. But, you know, as far as uh, programmatically what we do, I just, I love it. And then it's all I know how to do. So. It's, it's what I'll continue to do for now. I've been speaking with Eric Seitz of Pitchfork Farm in Burlington, Vermont. Eric, uh, I wish you and your farm a, a quick recovery. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Now to NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg, who has the backstory on a 19th century masterpiece on display at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's Whistler's Mother painted by James Abbott McNeil Whistler in 1871. An American, he was living in London. His mother... He adored his mother. ...lived with him. He even bumped his mistress out to make room for mom in his house. Philadelphia curator Jennifer Thompson says Mrs. Whistler scolded James for his wild bohemian ways and naughty escapades. James didn't mind. He was busy making art and getting admired. Jennifer Thompson quotes a well-known 19th century poet, playwright, and wits comment on the great attention-loving painter. Oscar Wilde would famously say of him that Whistler spelled art with a capital I. 
Museum director Sasha Souter says Mother Whistler, on the other hand, looked so modest and unassuming in profile on canvas. It's almost a moment frozen in time. She wears a black morning dress, a white cap, and her hands are quietly folded on her lap. Why is she sitting? Well, apparently she originally stood, and then she found it was very difficult to hold that pose. She was 67 and not that well. It was an accident, her posing that day. A model couldn't come. Son James wanted to get to work. His loving mother agreed to do it. It's not a portrait. For him, it's an experiment with color in these very subtle tones. Somber colors, grays, blacks, a dash of pink on her skin. The title is Arrangement in Black and Gray, number one. Whistler's subtitle is Portrait of the Artist's Mother. Anna Whistler looks so severe, austere, but she's said to have been charming loved by children and her family. And this picture of her at the Philadelphia Museum of Art until the end of October is one of the best-known paintings in the world. Is it a masterpiece? My sources had careful answers. Me too. We all have mothers. We're all getting older. The painting is timeless. And masterpieces, like mothers, are in the eyes of the beholder. I'm Susan Stamberg, Washington, D.C. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR on Marketplace, Major League Cricket is hugely popular across the globe. Tonight it makes its U.S. debut in Texas. Marketplace starts at 6.30. Stocks ended on the upside today. The Dow rose more than a tenth of a percent. S&P gained more than eight-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq rose more than one and a half percent. State officials say at least 1,000 acres of crops in the western part of the state were destroyed by this week's flooding. Agricultural Commissioner Ashley Randall says small farmers were hit hard. We estimate that there could be 75, at least, farms that were impacted and potentially $10 million in losses to the agricultural sector. Randall says the state is working to provide assistance to affected farms. A major figure in Boston advertising is retiring. Hill Holiday CEO and Chair Karen Kaplan has announced she's leaving the agency after four decades. She started as a receptionist in the early 80s. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DEC using the power of visuals, presence, and storytelling to help speakers connect with audiences. More at presentationsbydeck.com. Clouds gathering tonight, chance of heavy rain, lows about 73, and then cloudy skies lasting the day tomorrow. Could have showers off and on again, topping out at about 82 degrees. For the weekend, partly sunny along with some showers on Saturday, and then for Sunday, gray skies, showers, maybe some thunderstorms, about 84 on Saturday, about 80 on Sunday. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We're going to take the next few minutes to talk through rising tensions in East Asia. Now, there's several things going on at once. This week, North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile that flew for a longer time than any of its previous ICBMs. The U.S., meanwhile, is expected to send a nuclear-armed submarine to the Korean Peninsula. First time in decades that's happened. And on top of that, tensions are increasing between China and U.S. allies in Asia, Japan and South Korea. So what is driving the spike in regional tensions? Well, NPR's Anthony Kuhn, who is usually based in Seoul in South Korea, but who this week is here in Washington, is here in the studio. So nice to see you, Anthony. Nice to see you in person, Mary Louise. Okay, start with Pyongyang. And these missile tests, I know it's always hard to have any visibility into what North Korea is up to, but what are they up to here? Well, they tested their newest missile this week, which is theoretically capable of hitting the U.S., uh, and they first tested this missile three months ago, and so we knew they were going to be doing more to perfect it. These missile tests happen so often that we in South Korea uh, are not not terribly startled by them, but I Hmm. will say that in May, there was one which triggered alerts on our cell phones at six in the morning and told us to seek shelter or evacuate. And for the first time, I found out that there is actually a shelter, an evacuation center in the building across the street from me. So some of these tests... You had to investigate where you would go evacuate if you were going to have to do it. Exactly. Okay, um, so that's a little bit of what is happening in the air in the region or might be happening in the air. Um, What about this U.S. move to send a submarine? This is presumably to try to deter adversaries, reassure allies? That's right. The allies want reassurance. They're feeling nervous. However, critics say that, you know, sending the submarines is really more for show because they could fire these missiles from a far greater distance and they'd be safer, whereas they, if they travel into the shallow waters near the Korean peninsula, they'll be more vulnerable. Um, and sometimes it's actually easier to deter the adversaries than to reassure the allies. South Korea is so nervous that it has been talking earlier this year about the possibility of getting its own nuclear weapons, not relying on the U.S.'s, and the U.S. had to tamp that down. They said that will not be happening, and so that has shown the difficulty of reassuring allies. I mentioned growing tension between China and U.S. allies in Asia, specifically Japan, South Korea. What is behind that? Well, uh, Both South Korea and Japan are under conservative governments that have drawn closer to each other, uh, closer to Washington, and distanced themselves from both China and North Korea. And that has caused frictions. Uh, For example, example, China's ambassador to South Korea, Xing Haiming, said last month to South Korea, do not bet against us. Do not bet against China. So they have a tricky task to try to shake Seoul and Tokyo loose from their alliances alliances with Washington instead of pushing them deeper uh, into Washington's embrace. Hmm. And meanwhile, complicating even that, there there are tensions between these two allies, between Japan and South Korea. Walk me through what's at stake there and whether that's improving? Yes. Well, uh, the U.S.'s strategy for dealing with China is centered on working with its allies, South Korea and Japan. However, what it would like 
which is a three-way alliance, is not what it has. It has two separate alliances, and Japan and South Korea, because of their historical tensions and feuds, don't always work together. Now, uh, partially through the U.S.'s involvement, they, uh, South Korea and Japan have begun to mend fences, but they still have many unresolved issues. One is the issue of Japan's use of forced labor of Koreans during World War II. Many South Koreans are not happy with the deal that South Korea has proposed on this. And the, another example is the crippled Fukushima nuclear reactor from uh -huh. which Japan is going to start emptying treated wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. And South Korea's government has says that's okay. Uh, but South Korea's people are not happy with it. So all of these things uh, could pose difficulties um, for this crucial relationship that the U.S. is counting on in East Asia. Crucial relationships. It sounds like it's, it's uh, many different paths that the U.S. is going to be needing to work at once. That is NPR's Anthony Kuhn, usually in Seoul for us this week in Washington and right in front of me here in the studio. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. For thousands of athletes, old age has not been enough to keep them from competing in sports like pickleball, shuffleboard, even basketball. As Jillian Forstat from member station WESA reports, competitors at the National Senior Games are vying to take home the gold. Inside the Lawrence Convention Center in downtown Pittsburgh, roughly a dozen teams, men and women, play basketball, half court. So it's a little bit disappointing as you're aging, can't move as quickly because that's what I am accustomed to, moving and maneuvering quicker than most people. Sheila Bingham came with her team, the Jackson Madison Elite from Jackson, Tennessee. And we actually have a player that's 82. Yeah, so she is my motivator. When I see her, I can't quit. I'm encouraged to do more and keep playing. Back in high school, Bingham led the women's team. But older female athletes at the games remember a time when school teams for girls weren't guaranteed. In the early 1970s, Jean Trimboli of Norwalk, Connecticut, was the first woman to receive a basketball scholarship to Sacred Heart University. First captain, we had six girls on the team, that was it. And, um, you know, just play the four years and after that, where I lived and where I was from, there was nothing else. And then married and had my starting five, I call them. <laughs> the starting five, no subs. Though Trimboli remained involved in the sport, coaching and running leagues for her kids, she longed to play again. Then at 56, she found the Connecticut Classics. Now I'm playing Sunday mornings, I play Wednesday nights, I play nationals, I play, now I can't get enough. The Senior Games athletes come from all 50 states and several native communities. Here for shuffleboard is Debbie Lenti Hohola, a member of the Isleta Pueblo outside Albuquerque, New Mexico. We have other Pueblos here from Jemez, Sandia, some ladies from Hickory, Apache, and yes, there's some other teams from Albuquerque area and surrounding, but because we're native, tend to hang out with the natives. <laughs> The games are a chance to reconnect with old friends, near and far. On the pickleball courts, Sandra Woods is cooling down. I've played four times already. I've won three and lost one. For 51 years, Woods taught physical education in D.C. schools. And we played paddleball, so this was an easy transfer for me. At nearly 80 years old, Woods says she wants to inspire others to keep playing the games they love. The body is made to move. And uh, I, I'm just grateful. Grateful both for the good health that allows her to compete and for teammates turn friends. 
For NPR News, I'm Jillian Forstat in Pittsburgh. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds gather over the next several hours. Tonight should be anywhere from damp to kind of stormy. Chance of heavy rain, temperatures about 73. Then for tomorrow, clouds hang in there. Some rain as well, topping out at about 82 degrees. 85 degrees now in Boston. Former Bruins coach Bruce Cassidy brought the Stanley Cup to Milton today to help a close family friend raise money for a new charity. Cassidy and his Vegas Golden Knights clinched the cup last month in his first season as coach and the first season after the Bruins fired him. The coach says he wants to help the foundation that honors 13-year-old Cassidy Murray, who died in a water tubing accident last year in Aruba. Cassidy can't imagine, he says, the pain the girl's parents are experiencing. I'm sure they'd want to trade places with their daughter in a heartbeat, but they've got to, as they say, they got to, they have to have hope and they got to move on. The new foundation offers mental health services to people struggling to cope with the loss of a loved one. This is WBUR. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning.